Kia ora, I'm Emile Donovan, and today on The Detail, I'm speaking to Helen Clark about the invasion of Ukraine. Now, we've got a lot to get through here, so no fancy intro, but first off, some stuff about Ukraine. Disclaimer, this is complicated, we don't have that much time, so I will abridge a lot of it, but hopefully it gives some useful context around what's happening here. Ukraine is a big country. It's the second biggest in Europe after European Russia. As of 2020, about 44 million people live there. Now, it was a part of the Soviet Union, and it gained independence when the Union dissolved in 1991. And since then, like much of the former Soviet bloc, Ukraine has struggled with corruption and the difficulties in transitioning to a capitalist, nominally democratic system. However, many people in Russia bemoaned and continue to bemoan the fall of the Soviet Union. They see many of these former Soviet states as intrinsically part of their nation and fear them becoming westernised, countries like Ukraine. Many ethnic Russians live in the east of Ukraine, particularly in the Donbass region, whose two largest cities are Donetsk and Luhansk, and also in Crimea. Russian is the most spoken language in those parts of the country. Separatists in these regions have declared them to be people's republics, which is to say they're not part of Ukraine, although this is not recognised by the global community. In 2014, with a backdrop of violent protests going on against the corrupt Ukrainian President Viktor Yanukovych, who was very pro-Russian and who was eventually ousted in a US-backed coup, Russia, who supported those separatists, decided to invade Crimea and Donbass. Crimea was annexed. Donbass has remained a war zone for the past eight years. Russia has maintained a presence in these areas. They've claimed there's a Nazi conspiracy to purge them of ethnic Russians. And it's undeniable, there are some Ukrainians who would quite like that, just as there are extremists in every country. But there's no suggestion it's supported by the state or a majority of the Ukrainian people. On February 22nd, Vladimir Putin officially recognised the People's Republics of Donetsk and Luhansk. Two days later, claiming he wanted to demilitarise and denazify Ukraine, he authorised a large-scale invasion. So, all that being said, the fundamental question, what is Putin thinking? You know, let's underline there is no justification for the invasion of Ukraine. But then if we stand back and say, well, what really is, is going on in Vladimir Putin's mind, we can construct something like this. And the this is based on his perception, and he said this many times, the fall of the Soviet Union was the greatest tragedy of the 20th century. That's what he believes. And one way or another, he's been trying to keep a foothold, if you like, on on what was. He doesn't feel secure when he looks at a map of Europe and he sees NATO in the Baltic countries abutting Russia, NATO in Poland, NATO in Slovakia, Hungary, Romania. This makes him very insecure. I think the big issue is why has he done this now? And I 
think the timing must have something to do with a perception that the West is weak, uh, the debacle in Afghanistan, for example. Obviously, President Biden and much of Western Europe by the COVID disaster, which Russia should have been distracted by, but uh, hasn't had a particularly effective uh, response to. And he's thought, if not now, when, I expect. You mentioned NATO before uh, and the perceived threat on Vladimir Putin's part of that NATO poses to Russia. NATO is a defensive alliance. What is the logic behind that from Putin's point of view? Why would he be scared of NATO? Well, what he would be saying is, who are you defending yourself against? So he clearly sees it as an alliance which is uh, geared uh, towards defending its members from Russia. But he will go a step further and say, actually, it's an alliance which could have you know, been aggressive towards us being on the the front foot, which I don't think is these days in in NATO's posture uh, at all. I mean, NATO is well aware that Russia's a nuclear power and you don't want to invoke World War III. And that that was why there was the huge concern in the early hours of the morning here when uh, President Putin put his nuclear forces on high alert. Look, after the fall of the Soviet Union, there were a series of meetings and agreements uh, reached between Russia and and NATO, where they cooperated in various ways, held high-level meetings, tried to um, get an understanding of each other. But with the invasion of the, the Donbass region and Crimea, that literally went to custard. And and I suspect that these last eight years, the level of quality discussion and engagement that there had been from the early 90s pretty much evaporated. Do we know anything about Russia's actual long-term aims here? Like, what does it actually want? Does it want to subjugate and absorb all of all of Ukraine? Is it just the the Donbass area? Is it something that might progress over time? Like, there there has to be some kind of overarching objective to this, surely. Well, people I'm uh, speaking to in the diplomatic community, including in New York, uh, think that he may not actually have a definitive game plan because he has a range of, of options. It's a bit like a cat, you know, putting out a paw, extending its claws and seeing how much traction it, it gets. Mm. So in a sense, we're all reacting to the range of strategic options that he has. The truth is that the invasion hasn't exactly gone gone to plan. I mean, after four days of this huge imbalance of forces, they, they haven't taken much at all, and probably to his surprise, because his mindset is back, I think, in the era of the Soviet Union, the Ukrainians haven't run away from it. The president stood his ground. The command and control of the military is intact. They've fought back, and the citizens have taken to the general mobilization and picking up weapons and making Molotov cocktails and so on. So it's it's not a pushover, despite the imbalance. Mm. If you try to occupy a large country like Ukraine, and just between these two biggest cities, Kiev and Kharkiv, and Google Map tells me there's about 800 kilometers distance between them. This Mm. is not a small country. It's a big country and a lot of people, but most of them not wanting to be occupied by, by Russia. So 
it's not a, a, a smooth thing to achieve this. And I think what he had perhaps hoped as his optimal scenario was that uh, Kiev would have collapsed quickly. Zelensky would either have been killed or left in a helicopter like Ashraf Ghani left uh, Kabul. Mm-hmm. They would install a puppet government and hope that you know, the people would say, oh, well, let's live with it. Well, that's not the way it's playing out, is it? So his, his options are to freeze where he is, diplomatic talks with, with Ukraine. And I think the, the best outcome we could hope for in the next couple, next couple of days is that there might be at least a, even a temporary cessation so that people can exchange their dead, the Red Cross can get in. There's just a deep breath to see where there's a, a basis for further discussion. And then you look at where that further discussion might be, and there's, there's several possibilities. I mean, you could keep meeting in no man's land on the Belarus border. Uh, you have, in effect, offers from strongman leaders and governments in Turkey, Hungary, and Azerbaijan, uh, offering to be the venue for talks, which would in normal times be acceptable to Moscow and, and is acceptable to Ukraine. Uh, you also have the UN capitals of Vienna and Geneva. Were, were they to be used? They're recognised as neutral ground, neither neither country and NATO. So, you know, the best we could hope for is that, that kind of rollout. But it, the, the real danger is that he may think, I'm going to give this a huge heave and bring many more forces and military equipment forward and start, you know, major bombing of, of Ukrainian cities, and, and it just keeps uh, spinning out like that. So, you know, we just have to urge, you know, that that there be some kind of cessation, uh, a breather, time to talk, and then you can talk about, you know, the medium to longer term issues, but you can't even talk at that while they're bombing Ukrainian cities. Have you met Vladimir Putin before? Yes, I've met Vladimir Putin at a whole series of uh, APEC summits when I was Prime Minister. Uh, you get to you know, talk to all the uh, APEC leaders. I, on one occasion, sat next to him at, at a banquet. That's where I was located, my name card, and spoke with him throughout uh, much of a dinner through an interpreter. I, on another occasion, was seated next to him at at the leader's lunch and spoke to him through the lunch, and I would uh, speak with him as I spoke with other leaders in the green room. But I have to say, and this is not a unique comment to me, the man I was talking to is not the man I see on TV today. Mm -hmm. He's a man now who's been in power a very long time. Uh, He seems to have become increasingly angry. Um, and is not, in, in my opinion, uh, making decisions which are good for his country, let alone Ukraine and the rest of us. I think President Putin deeply feels in his own mind that Russia was humiliated by the West. Hmm. He feels, and this is you know, also repeated in other Russian ruling circles, that at the end of the Cold War, under President uh, Yeltsin, uh, there was a, an informal understanding that, that NATO would not advance around its borders. It, he believes that. Whether there was any such undertaking is another matter altogether. Uh, but he's seen you know, this, what he considers as, as encirclement. He's seen Ukrainian governments talk about wanting to join NATO, and he's literally seen red. And that has um, overridden, really, rationality and, and common sense. I clearly remember... 
in one of these conversations I had with him through interpreters at uh, an APEC dinner, saying to him, of how much interest is this Asia-Pacific relationship to you in reality? And he said to me, what matters most for us is the relationship with Europe. Mm. So, so, so to turn his back on that, you know, a statement of, you know, somewhere around the middle of the first decade of the uh, 21st century to where we are today is, is, is really quite, quite stunning. When I say he feels they were humiliated, humiliated by, in his mind, the advance of, of NATO, humiliated by the fact that when Yeltsin was there, you know, the Chicago School of Economists ruled, right? I mean, many Russians fell into huge poverty. Russia was actually quite a poor country. And, and in a sense, this sort of agrandissement, you know, this sort of building up of Russia's international military posture may be an attempt to distract people uh, somewhat from that, to persuade them that they're still a great power, even though, you know, in, in living standards terms, things aren't so great. The rest of the world, the response from the rest of the world uh, is is very much on the side of Ukraine here for a whole bevy of reasons. But it is notable that no other countries have joined Ukraine in directly fighting Russia. Why is that? Well, firstly, uh, Ukraine, as is painfully obvious, is not in NATO. And NATO's um, collective defence uh, responsibility is to respond to its members. Ukraine is not a member, and there's a very good reason why it's not a member, because NATO always envisaged that if Russia did something like this, to actually go to the defence of Ukraine could well end up with the unimaginable consequences that President Putin uh, mentioned the, the other day. Vladimir Putin ordering a change to the status of deterrence forces, which includes nuclear weapons because of what he called Western and NATO aggression. But what is sending President Putin into orbit now is that the European Union, it is backing its members sending armaments to Ukraine. For the first time ever, the European Union will finance the purchase and delivery of weapons and other equipment to a country that is under attack. This is a watershed moment. It's backing... Uh, economic sanctions, which are increasingly severe, the severing of access to the SWIFT banking uh, system. It means that selected Russian banks will be disconnected from other global banks and won't be able to transact. Or in other words, Russia can't get paid for their goods. Hugely damaging. When Iran was denied access to the SWIFT system, its foreign trade declined by 30%. Mm. As I say, Russia's not a rich country. You know, this this matters. It may be, in a way, that the biggest pressure that will come on President Putin to to find a, an exit strategy or an off-ramp for this will come from the business interests. He's known to be close to powerful oligarchs, and those he aren't cl- isn't close to can end up in, in jail, as we've seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of them will be seriously impacted by the by the sanctions. So for all the brave talk of, you know, so what, we've got China and other markets, actually these sanctions will hurt. So I think, you know, now that the countries caught up in this vortex, which is, you know, all the NATO uh, countries in, in particular, 
and then those watching from the sidelines like China, which has spoken up for the preservation of Ukraine's sovereignty, everyone needs to be looking for the offering. Bearing in mind that we're dealing with a very complex uh, individual who carries a particular uh, understanding of history, which contributes to him acting the way that he is. It's not a a simple matter to get an exit strategy out of this. You spoke of the idea of an off-ramp before, and that being the priority at the moment. But I put this to you. We've got a country here that's been banned from the Olympics for a flagrant state-sponsored doping campaign. There's strong evidence it's used neurotoxins to try to assassinate its own citizens on other sovereign nations' territory. It's already annexed territory in Crimea. It's been reported repeatedly that this administration has assassinated journalists, opposition politicians, dissenters. Russia has, has consistently looked the global community in the eye and said, I dare you to do something about it, and the response has been weak. Well, the question is what you can do, and perhaps of the really tough sanctions like the access to the banking system have been invoked going back eight years ago, we might have created off-ramps then, but that didn't happen. So in my humble opinion, the NATO countries are doing as much as they can right now, but, but they need help. They need help from China. Clearly, President Xi of China and President Putin have a relationship. China does not have an interest in instability and insecurity in Europe and disruption of supply chains and and the rest of it. Uh, China needs peace for development like we all do. So that's why I say we have to come back to diplomacy work out how to handle an extremely difficult situation. I acknowledge everything you've said about what has been going on in Russia, the, the poisonings and you know, taking that, of course, offshore to the UK and, and others to knock people out, uh, devastating. Uh, the, the detentions, imprisonments of journalists and others, uh, I think 3,000 people locked up for protesting against the uh, invasion of Ukraine in just the, in the last two or three days or so. So this is a very difficult country. But what you don't want to do is throw a lighted match into a keg of ammunition. Mm. So you have to really be thinking, how are we going to manage this? And I don't think you're going to manage it by sort of hanging out and hoping for a road to Damascus conversion for President Putin. You've got to come at this from a range of angles and interests. Let's talk quickly about the UN. Here's a bleakly humorous anecdote. Late February, the UN Security Council introduces a draft resolution which would have demanded Moscow stop its attack and withdraw its troops. Russia votes against it, and because Russia is one of the five permanent members of the Security Council, that single vote vetoes that resolution. Is that not a terrible metaphor for the ineffectiveness of the Security Council in preventing or dealing with these sorts of situations? Yes, uh, it, it, it's monstrous. And it you know, makes the case that so many countries, including New Zealand, have been making for decades, that the post-war victors of World War II should not be veto-wielding permanent members of of the Security Council in perpetuity, right? There's something wrong with the veto and there's something wrong with the 
Security Council permanent membership being stuck in the situation of of, of it's a joke. It means the way things are structured, it means in practical terms, any of those five permanent members can do whatever they like and there will be no consequences yeah. from the UN. But, but think about this. 2003 and the invasion of Iraq, the US and the UK worked hard to get the Security Council to back their invasion. The Security Council explicitly refused to do so they went ahead and did it anyway. If you go back to any number of statements I made at that time, I said, "It's these countries may be our friends, but they are creating a terrible precedent of invading a sovereign country, which may have a horrific government, which it did, Saddam Hussein. But once you step outside the boundary of international law and do that, you create a precedent for others which you may not like. You've touched on this, but I wonder whether you can sort of lay it out. What are some of the ways that this could end? Right. So there's the whole spectrum of ways that Russia, through overwhelming force, occupies Ukraine, puts in a puppet government and, in effect, recreates it as a part of (laughs) a new Soviet Union. That's the worst-case scenario. And we can't say it's an impossible scenario. The only thing that's holding it back is that Ukraine is fighting you know, men and women are fighting. And their army command's intact and the president hasn't run away, which is incredible, you know, given given the circumstances. The best case scenario is that we get to talks and we establish uh, a basis on which uh, Ukraine and Russia uh, will live in peace side by side. In my humble opinion, that will probably mean Uh, that Ukraine will need to accept uh, that it is a neutral country. It doesn't want to be in a recreated Warsaw Pact with Russia, but it probably can't ever be in NATO either. Uh, It is a classic buffer state where great power interests uh, are either side of it. It's the meat and the sandwich. And when Russia has felt that the buffer's gone, that's when it's got very, very angry. Mm. Uh, So that's probably the best case. Uh, I I can't, as I sit here, say that I see a best case where Ukraine is able to say, we'll join what we want and do what we want. Uh, That's probably unrealistic. So I think there needs to be some more real politique around these big strategic dynamics that I'm referring to. And and just finally on this... The thing that depresses me about this, it it feels so pointless. It feels so arcane, you know, declaring war over territory and land, killing humans and sacrificing your own citizens and spending billions of dollars. It's medieval and it's depressing and it makes me lose a little bit of faith in humans. You know, as someone who spent their life dedicated to international relations and improving international relations and and living in the most peaceful time, arguably, in, in human history... How do you feel about it? Oh, well, I'm devastated by it. And I'm sitting, you know, watching international coverage with, with my father, who was born in 1922. Mm. He, he keeps saying as we watch hour after hour of international channels, he can't do this. I say, but, Dad, he is. We've got to work out what the way out is. But it, it's who, who would have thought we would see this in Europe in our lifetimes? Uh, it's just a, a, a dreadful, dreadful development, and we – need negotiated solutions out of it. What we don't want is World War III out of it and the use of nuclear weapons. Is that a possibility? 
Well, <laughs> I don't want to be a sort of shroud waver, but the president of Russia has put his weapons on high alert. Let's just hope there's no miscalculations. That's it for today. I'm Emile Donovan. The detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Adrian Holley and produced by Sarah Robson. And thanks to Helen Clark. Matewa. <laughs>